Hello and welcome to another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, I'm Danny Lobel. I'm sitting outside at night in Baltimore. We went up to New York for Thanksgiving, to my family, then to Baltimore, to my wife's family. And we're staying with her sister and her husband and their kids. I don't want to wake the kids, so I'm outside and I can see my breath. As I talk, it's the East Coast. It's cold. I'm going to keep it brief so I can get back into the warmth. But today's episode is very exciting. I talk to Phil Proctor, one of the two remaining members of the Firesign Theater, who were a revolutionary surrealist comedy group in the 1960s, who put out a bunch of albums and films and radio plays. So Phil is one of the two remaining members, and he just put out a book called Where's My Fortune Cookie? And I talked to him about the book. I read the book. It's great. I highly recommend it. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor, the one and only Stand Up Records. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Maron, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. StandUp Records, the brand you know, the brand you love, and there are copies of my two albums available for sale on StandUpRecords.com. Danny Lobel, some kind of comedian, and Danny Lobel, the nicest boy in Barcelona. I have been informed that there are also still a few copies of my first album, Danny Lobel, some kind of comedian, left on vinyl, and they are still on sale from Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever it is you want to call it. They're up there, and you can get them. Hear the sirens in the background? Shit is going down in Baltimore tonight. And it's cold. It's so cold out here. And I got to keep my voice down. Don't want to wake the kids. I want to get you right into this episode. But I do want to let you know we recorded this on Phil Proctor's roof. He's got like a little roof patio at his house. So you do hear planes going by overhead throughout the interview. I think it kind of adds to it. It gives it its own feel. You get to feel like you're sitting there at Phil Proctor's house too. And we open the interview by talking a little bit about that house and that neighborhood. So without further ado, except of course for the intro song, it's cold. Here's my talk with the one and only Firesign Theaters, Phil Proctor. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel! Modern Day Philosophers. Alrighty, I am sitting outside in beautiful Beverly Hills, I guess. This is Beverly well, Hills. We're Beverly Hills adjacent. If this uh, if a, if this house catches fire, the Beverly Hills uh, Fire Department will not come 
and uh. extinguished the flames. The Los Angeles Fire Department, which is just up the hill on Mulholland, <laughs> will come racing down, as they have done before, to quench any fires that happen. Have on you had this a street. fire here? Yes, we've had several fires on this street, uh -huh. uh, but not, thank goodness, on this lower part of the street where we live. So we're in Benedict Canyon, one of the finer canyons because it's not overdeveloped, uh, and it's been around for a very long time. There's been a murder on this street, only one, uh, and it happened about four doors down on the left. It was a, uh, a female caseworker who was working with a disturbed patient who came over to uh, uh, ask her for her hand in marriage, mm -hmm. and instead he cut off her hand and he killed her. No, and instead he shot her because she refused his hand. So he, he shot her and then he killed himself. <laughs> it would be so much better if he'd killed himself first right. and then shot her, but, you know, uh, <laughs> that's not the way it works out, oddly enough. So the other strange thing about murder and this street is, that the Sharon Tate murders uh, occurred up Benedict Canyon, about another five, ten minutes away on Cielo Drive. I should know who the, what that is, but the I don't. The Sharon Tate murders? Yeah. Young man, you don't know about the Sharon Tate murders? Have you ever heard of a guy named Polanski? Yes. Yes. Uh, his wife was Sharon Tate, and Sharon Tate uh, was renting a house up the street here, and Charles Manson, does that name ring a bell with yes, you? Yes, yes. Charles Manson arranged for his crazy followers to go up and kill everybody in that house, which was a terrible mistake because he actually was targeting a record producer who had rented that house, but he wasn't there. Instead, pregnant Sharon Tate and all these other innocent people and Jay Sebring, who had just flown in, they were all murdered. Wow. The reason I'm bringing this up is twofold. The first thing is the murderers washed their weapons off, the blood off their weapons, at the house beyond this house you're looking at right now. That house right there? The next house up, our little street, uh -huh. okay? And the other interesting thing, my first wife, Sheila Wells, was a good friend of Sharon Tate's. They were roommates in Los Angeles because they were both under contract to Universal. And Sheila, the night of the murders, had invited Sharon for dinner at her house. Mm -hmm. And Sharon called up and said that she wasn't going to be able to make it. Uh, she was just going to order some Mexican food in. And she's dead. She's dead. Mm -hmm. But she did say to my uh, future wife, Sheila, why don't you come up and join us? Which would have saved me a nasty divorce. Mm -hmm. But she said, no, I have another friend coming over. I'll call you afterwards. She calls afterwards. All of the lines are down. They'd been cut, of course. She called Colonel Tate, you know, Sharon's dad, and said, something's wrong at the house. And by that time, they knew that the, that the horror had happened. Oh and the rest God. of the story is, is histrionics, or history, if you will. Wow. That's kind of a, a short history of this street. But your story in your book, Where's the Fortune Cookie, is... is uh, oh, which one? Escaping death at the, at, in, the, in the mass murder? Well, I mean, you talk about it in the book, you've had a lot of cosmic things. Uh, yes. And I, For a comic, I've had a lot of cosmic experiences. Yeah. Uh, it's true. I, I wonder if, uh, if it's all connected, the fact that you went with the name Firesign Theater. Yeah, well, that was all Bergman's doing. Peter Bergman and I uh, had met first at Yale University. And we reconnected in Los Angeles, and I got involved with his radio show, Radio Free Oz, on KPFK, listener-supported radio, and met these two other guys, Phil Austin and David Osman. And we all discovered we were fire signs. I'm a Leo, two Sagittarians and Aries. Peter was the Wizard of Oz on a show called Radio Free Oz, which was the first counterculture, maybe the only counterculture late-night call-in talk show. Uh, 
And we discovered that we were all fire signs. So Bergman's brilliant idea was that we'd be called the Oz Fire Sign Theater because we began improvising together on the radio and discovered that we had this, uh, this amusing talent to be able to uh, uh, play different characters off of one another and have a lot of fun, which led to a recording career and three Grammy nominations and uh, a 50-year career of performing all over the country, Carnegie Hall, Library of Congress, you name it. One of our albums, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand of the Pliers, was inducted into the Library of Congress seven years ago, and the, re the last remaining member of the group, plus me, Dave Osman, performed there recently in a command performance because they're interested in acquiring our archives. That's bringing us up to the present moment. Now, yes. to go back, 40 years ago this September... Peter and I, who had branched off from the Firesign Foursome and become Procter & Bergman, half the wits of the Firesign Theater, because we wanted to tour the country and Canada and meet our audience and develop new material. Sure. And out of that came three albums, three solo albums, but at the same time, they were still collaborating with the Firesign Theater. Well, we were up in San Francisco performing at a, a gig that we'd done before, and after the show was over... Uh, our friend Bill Alexander, who is a psychiatrist, <laughs> we have lots of psychiatrist friends, they study us. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to take us out for dinner, but things being as they were, uh, everything got delayed, and so the, the place he wanted to take us to, the Trident, his favorite place, was closed. So he said, don't worry, we'll go down to Chinatown there, they stay open late there. And we found a parking place in front of the most popular restaurant in Chinatown at the time. The perfect parking place. Perfect spot in between the garbage, it was ideal right at the front door uh, of the golden dragon so we go in uh, the waiters comes out he says you got to order fast we're gonna close soon oh we're gonna close soon little did he know and mm -hmm. it was like 2 30 in the morning chinese dentist time so we ordered i'm bending over my second cup of soup and i hear bang bang crash crash scream scream and i feel stuff flying over my head i look up cautiously not without lifting my head, and I see three Chinese guys, one with a machine gun or a automatic rifle, we call them now, right? And a shot, another with a shotgun, another with a pistol, and they're shooting up the place. And they'd already killed two people at the table in front of me because uh, I'm facing the front door. So I dropped below the table behind the steel column of the little round table. Peter you know, trusting me, drops to the floor. Bill dropped to the floor, but he'd been shot. A machine gun slug had ricocheted off the floor, entered the seam of his boot. You had to squeeze the boot to see where it went in, no hole in the shoe, and he's still carrying that slug behind his knee 40 years later because it's too much trouble to take it out. Wow. Common practice, I've, I've been told now. If it's not life-threatening, you just carry it as a souvenir and set off alarms every time you travel, right? Yeah. So... I'm lying there. The shooting is going on. The guy with the machine gun, much like a recent shooting, was constant. Bam, 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 bam. And I'm, I'm lying there. That morning, I'd learned that my wife, Barbara Semmingson, who lived with me in this house, which she bought for me sight unseen because I was in, on tour in Canada, she told me that she was pregnant. And so I, when I drive, drove up to the airport and, and, went, and went on this gig and everything, I'm thinking, my God, I'm going to be a father. I'm gonna, my life has changed. I'm going to be a father. So now I'm lying under the table, and I'm, I have two thoughts in my head. One, I could die. Two, I could be a father. 
and one is responsibility, and the other is no responsibility. It was the perfect yin and yang place to be in yeah. a Chinese restaurant <laughs> with people who could <laughs> potentially kill me. Okay, yeah, and uh, and then I my my mind moved on to uh, if the shooting stops. No, I can go home. And I was thinking of like a, a dentist. When the drilling stops, you go home. Right, I remember that line yeah, in the book. Right. Yeah, it's really going through my way. The drilling, the drilling stop. So I'm waiting for the shooting to it's stop. Funny that your mind went there. Well, you know, I was not. I was never frightened during the entire experience. I had. But it, but I thought it was interesting that it went to dentist of all the things. <laughs> well, you know? dentist is all you know a painful situation that you uh -huh. that you you put yourself in and you have no control over it. He's working on you, mm -hmm. you know. You're paying him, yeah. and, and you have to wait until he's done. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's noisy and it's and it's scary. All right. So anyway, uh, I'm thinking all of that and. Uh, uh, and the shooting stops. I was also relieved when I heard the, the, the murderer is moving to another part of the restaurant. Yes. Okay. Recently, I uh, on Facebook, I got a message from another guy who was there in a wheelchair during the shooting. Wow. In that other That's part of the restaurant. Yeah, yeah even... and he, had, he threw himself out of the wheelchair mm -hmm. so that he could play dead. Okay. Uh -huh. And he survived, you know. Uh, anyway, the final count was five killed and 11 wounded. And at the time... It was called the worst mass murder in American history. Now it's just called a Tuesday. Yeah, that's right. That's Edward. right. You know, don't yeah. order, don't order the food to go. You yeah. know, and and what happened was that right after the shooting uh, was over, I would say within minutes, a cameraman and a lighting guy burst in through the front door and scanned the scene, and then ran out. And they were followed in short order by scads of policemen and medics who immediately tended to the, you know, the triage, trying to save lives. And, and it was at that point that we said, my friend's been, oh, we found out that Bill had been shot. And uh, where can we go? And there was an emergency hospital. And we did that. And then the next morning, the cops interviewed us in our hotel mm -hmm. lobby because we had to fly off and perform in uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado at the university. And, of course, by then we were saying, now you probably all heard about the Golden Dragon Massacre, which happened last night. Well, Peter and I were there. Yeah. We were under the table. But luckily, I ordered the duck. Right, and Peter said, <laughs> yeah. and I ordered the scared prawns, scared prawns. Okay, yeah. and and but he said, but I never got my fortune cookie. Okay, <laughs> now, now the title of my book is "Where Is Your Fortune Cookie?" There's two things about that. First of all, after the shooting was over, and we continued with our touring career more cautiously, and then decided to actually stop the touring career and write a movie, uh, work on a movie called J-Men Forever, which you can Google and is a cult favorite, cut up of old cliffhanger serials starring uh, Peter and me as J-Men in the style of the 40s cliffhanger serials, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but we stayed off the road. But uh, I would say maybe two weeks after all this happened, I suddenly remembered that the entire thing had been predicted to me by a friend of mine named Sharon. And that happened in a very strange way, too. And I'll try to tell the story very quickly. But Peter and I were going to, we were performing in Chicago. We were going to be performing at the bottom line in New York, or the bitter end, or the bitter line, or the bottom end. I'm not sure which. And when I got to the, and, and in Chicago, 
I picked up a newspaper and I was reading about this guy, Uri Geller, who was bending spoons and communicating with aliens. Now, Peter and I had created an, two alien characters, Beepo and Zippo from the planet Gorko, and we were basically doing comedy material about these aliens. We almost wrote a movie using them. I wish we had. Uh, and uh, so I got very excited and I said, Peter, we got to meet this guy. We got to mm -hmm. meet this, this Uri Geller. We'd already run into Steven Spielberg uh, at the airport flying to Chicago because he was, he was, who was, a, a, Spielberg is a, a friend that goes way back uh, with Fireside Theater history, but, but he used to hang out with us. But he was scouting locations for close encounters. So mm -hmm. there was all this UFO thing in the air, right? Uh, when we went into New York, we were interviewed by Tony Hiss, Alger Hiss's son, for the New Yorker Talk of the Town magazine, as Zippo and Beepo, aliens commenting on American society in the 70s. Can I get a, a taste of what that sounded like? Uh, when my character, Zippo, got sexually excited, uh, energy would build up and I could blow holes into walls. So uh -huh. in, our, in our movie, I would be, uh, these gangsters were using me to, to, to rob banks, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I forget, I forget. They had to somehow excite you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I forget the nature of, of, the, of our parody at that time. But, but be that as it may. But you didn't have a voice... That you would do? Oh, Zippo and people talk like this. Yes. Okay. You can hear their voices in the film that we made, Everything You Know Is Wrong, which is lip-synced to the album Firesign Theater did called Everything You Know Is Wrong, which is available now in a two-DVD set called Everything You Know Is Wrong, the declassified Fireside Theater <clears throat> that includes that short film and various other movies that we made, Martian Space Party, Papoon for President, and uh, various other appearances and things. So anyway... So, Sharon, uh, I, get, I get to the, the gig at the bottom end, the bottom line, the bitter line, and there's a message from a girl <laughs> named Sharon uh -huh. uh, with a 917 area code or something like that, which is like Woodstock. I don't know it's Sharon. The message is, Uri Geller wants to meet you. That's the message. Yeah. Uri Geller wants to meet you. Now, I don't know who's leaving this message, but I'm going, whoa, ho, ho. This is interesting. So I did some material. Uri Geller born with a bent spoon in his mouth and blah, 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 blah. And after it's over, I call this person up. And it turns out to be Sharon, who is a girlfriend I had a, a liaison with uh, when I was sharing a house in Encino with Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy. And we had, this was a house with an ape cage, flaming tiki bar, a fountain, a flaming fountain rather, tiki bar, Olympic-sized swimming pool, bomb shelter where we kept our marijuana, mm -hmm. and we had Bacchanalian parties, naked swimming parties every weekend. It was the, the swinging 70s, man. Yeah. It was the, the sexual revolution had, had occurred. Women were intimidating the hell out of us by wearing see-through blouses, you know, and uh -huh. oh my God, it was wonderful. So anyway, I went up to visit her in Osning, New York, where she was staying with Dr. Andrea Poharich, who was doing studies in higher consciousness, telepathy, and alien encounters and communication. And Uri Geller was working with him, and they would go out to the desert in Israel and talk to the flying saucer people. This is all secondhand stuff. I was never there. And she tells me this incredible story of a Firesign Theater album materializing, standing on its edge, absolutely unsupported by anything else, in the hallway of this house. She shows me the hallway. She says it dematerialized from where we keep our records in the closet upstairs, and it was standing there, and it was a Firesign Theater record, and she says, oh, and I, Phil Proctor's a friend of mine, and Uri Geller says, I gotta meet these guys. 
That's how that happened. Wow. So during the course of this evening. So wait a minute. So the so she says the record dematerialized yeah. and reappeared. Well, you know, she just saw it. Just standing They, they came back straight from up. A, t- a television appearance in New York uh-huh. and found it standing on its edge straight up in the hallway. And this did is what she, she told leave me. it there? Did she pick no, it up? No, they and went over and they picked it up and they tried to make it stand. It would fall over and they didn't know how to do it. This wow. is what she tells me. It's, I don't have any okay. pictures or anything. I can't prove any of this stuff. Sure. But, but uh, you know, she's a trustworthy person. So- she then tells me in the course of this wonderful evening we have together, she says, I hate to tell you bad news, but you and Peter are going to be involved in a, in a shooting. I said, well, really? She says, be after a show, you will be going, you'll be in a, in a public place and it's foreigners are involved and there will be, uh, people will be, will die. How she say it? People will be killed and wounded around you, but you and Peter will escape unscathed. Now, this event happened because the Joe Fong gang, which were, controlled Chinatown at the time, the rackets, the mafia, uh, they were re- trying to retaliate against the Hua Qing, the young Chinese, mm-hmm. for the murder of one of their gang members in a clash that they had. The Hua Qing, young Chinese, who were watching and went under the table when these guys came in, <laughs> yeah. they were trying to take over the rackets from the Joe Fong gang. So we were in the middle of this gangland shooting, and only innocent people got killed. It was terrible. So uh, having heard all this secondhand, I now went, well, she predicted it. She, she absolutely predicted it. Now, why is the book called Where's My Fortune Cookie? Not because of that. When Peter Bergman died about five years ago of complications of leukemia, we had a memorial service up north where he'd been spending time in Washington State, and we had one down in Venice, California. And one of the patrons of the Firesign Theater, a woman named Gretchen Steiner, had, crea- had uh, brought to the, to the memorial uh, boxes of fortune cookies with Peter Bergman's name, his date of birth and death, and quotes from various Fireside Theater albums, and he gave them out to everybody. And so naturally, after the service was over, I said, it was so thoughtful of you to bring all those fortune cookies. That's because, you know, we survived the Golden Dragon Massacre. And she said, what? I said, you know, the, the Chinese gangland shooting up in San Francisco in 77, that Peter and I survived? She said, what are you talking about? I said, wait a minute. You don't know about that? Why did you do fortune cookies? And here's what she told me. She said, because Peter came to me in a dream and said, I never got my fortune cookie. Wow. Wow. I can't explain any of this. Do these things make you more spiritual uh, uh, or more? No, they confirm what I believe. They confirm that I believe that there is an invisible world there is more to this dimension than our senses allow and that you can tap into it not in really unless unless you've you know you really want to focus on it and become like a guru or a, uh, I don't know what an Ori Geller or something uh, but basically it's it's magic it's it's real magic and you can become empathetic to it, sympathetic to it, tap into it. You can use the 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 the, the dimension, you you know, of the mind. You can and spirit. You can do that, but it's still a mystery. 
You know, I I, I have no answers, uh, only questions. What's your biggest question? Why all these mysterious things have happened to me? I have no idea. I have no idea why why lights go on and off around me still to this day, which Sharon said was a sign that the aliens are are like what you're doing. Uh, the aliens a- apparently like the fact that in, in my comedy, yeah. you know, my surrealist comedy, I'm saying like there's more to this world than meets the eye, Horatio. You know, there's, yeah. there's more to it than you see, and you can have more influence on it than you think you can, and that there are other beings and other consciousnesses and other dimensions out there. It's funny for me to think of a bunch of aliens next to light switches, and they go, here comes Phil, hit the light. We like what he does. <laughs> ah, but you see, we're all electrical <laughs> beings. We're all vibrating electrical <laughs> charges. But did yes. You, did you forget to hit the switch again? He's not going to think we like it. I'll just tell you that it began one one gloomy morning in the house that I shared with my second wife. And it was dark and we're sitting in this little kitchen we have. And we had a beautiful magic chef stove, which was part of the acquisition of the house. And I'm thinking, geez, I got to go turn that light on. Foom, foom, foom. And the light turned on, fluorescent light, above, in the hood, above the, the thing. I said to Peter, did you see that? He said, yes. I said, I just thought that. I just thought that. Yeah. And the light went on. And he went like, oh, okay. Burp it off and went like, oh, oh, okay. You know? But from that moment on, lights would go on and off around me all over the place. Still happens. Still happens. It just happened in Washington, D.C. when we were there. So when I was a kid, I used to control my dreams, okay? Uh, I could, if I had a particularly delightful dream, I could, by force of will, repeat it the next night. And knowing that I, w- and I was kind of developing these powers, uh, talents, God-given talents, and, uh, and so I studied self-hypnosis when I was in high school, taught myself self-hypnosis, used it to sleep teach, to learn languages, because languages came second nature to me because I could hear and repeat everything. You know? in, in self-hypnosis, how does it work? Well, there are various ways to go into a, a hypnotic state. I, I initially used some of the hypnotic inducers, like the spinning discs and things like that. But it's basically a deep meditation. And it, ca- it calls for a stillness of mind, stillness of body, concentration, focus into uh, going into a, a higher mental state where you are making yourself suggestive to positive ideas. All right. Here's who Alex picked out for you. He picked Karl Marx. What do you know Perfect. about Karl Marx? Marx and Lenin. Um, we used Karl Marx name and yes john in, lennon in parody and parody on our album and how can you Marx. be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all uh i traveled to the soviet union in my freshman year with the yale russian chorus and uh i'd been studying russian i actually started i taught myself russian in high school because i wanted to read the the propaganda posters that were on television all the time and uh I joined the Russian chorus because it was a perfect opportunity for me to combine my linguistic abilities with my with my singing. What's talents. your favorite Russian song to sing? Oh, uh, Vdol Paulice. May I hear a piece? <laughs> <laughs> 
Вдоль по улице метелица метет, За метелицей мой миленький идет. Ты постой, постой, красавица моя, Дозвала наглядеться радостно тебя. That was beautiful. Is that a great song? It felt sad. What does it mean? Uh, it's about a guy who's watching his girlfriend walk walk away from him in a snowstorm. It's very sad. And the second verse is even sadder. So I won't I won't sing it because it make you cry. She walks back because she forgot no, something. No, and she never again. walks back. No, no, she disappears in the Mitzieli sign, the snowstorm. Uh, all right. So, all right. So, so this is why Alex picked Marx for you. He says because Phil's a voice actor. Uh, Marx is a philosopher who talked about the people's voice being taken away. <laughs> <laughs> Alex is Alex is yes. definitely a comedian. Yes. <laughs> People's voice being taken away. Okay. Yes. Well, so <laughs> he says uh here's the synopsis he gives me. He says capitalism takes away every sense of satisfaction from workers. When when working for himself, a chairmaker feels proud making chairs. His products are just for him and represent his in mm -hmm. ingenuity. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got uh, it. This, uh, okay. this okay. You read, read uh, yeah, some more, I'll but then continue. I can. Okay. I have an answer for you. <clears throat> if he makes chairs in a factory, every chair is just for his boss's profit. He must meet factory standards, so he can no longer express himself through his work. He's also paid poorly and convinced that if he does not work for a business, he's a failure. The sadness of losing his creativity and autonomy makes him work even harder to buy things that he doesn't need. Capitalism says leisure time is bad because it makes you lazy. But leisure is the only time to take a breath and see the system is flawed. Cap ah. <laughs> Capitalism cannot tolerate leisure because then workers will realize that they're getting screwed. Self-awareness is bad for business. He didn't realize how popular the Marvel Comics movies would become. <laughs> <laughs> he does not take into, into uh, account uh, entertainment is the opiate of the masses. Yes. See? But what he's saying is absolutely true. Uh, in terms of uh, one's functioning, uh, you, I think immediately of uh, Charlie Chaplin in modern times being caught in the machine as mm -hmm. a cog of the machine. But here, here's what it makes me think of immediately. I was taking a course at Yale called The Philosophy of Art. And the professor in that course, his philosophy was that the artist has basically a screw-you attitude, that the artist must never be concerned with an audience in any capacity, that he must merely always create for himself. And this is a, a philosophy that some actors espouse, but it completely overlooks the empathetic aspect of performance of live performance it's very much i think the philosophy that andy kaufman adapted yeah he did he did uh and you know and it got him in a lot of trouble sure even though a surrealist like me absolutely understood what he was doing and embraced it uh at the same time the the, the whole reason for the success of the Firesign theater was because an audience bought our records because remember, we're putting out records. That's the plane to Canada, by the way. I've taken it many times oh, yeah? when I was performing. Bon voyage! Uh, when we made records, 
a record was basically uncensored. That's why we could say F you in our records. And, and we did that strange American pageant with all of the, the bad names for minorities in a song, in a happy little song. That's America, buddy. You know, the diverse, yeah. for div diversity of America. Those records were made to be taken home and listened to in the privacy of your own domain. You could share it with people if you wanted to, but they were uncensored, right? They were little flying saucers of their own filled with information. And, uh, and therefore, the only audience that was important to us was the audience that bought those records so that the company would say, oh, they're selling records. We're making a profit, we the capitalists. Mm -hmm. We've got to tell these boys to do more of what they do and we'll support them. So we were given the liberty to do what we wanted, primarily because we were given uh, a spoken arts contract mm -hmm. by a fellow named John McClure, which gave us unlimited studio time. And that's why we could make all these multi-layered comedy records. That's why we revolutionized the, uh, uh, the form of comedy recording at the time. And we're able to have the leisure time to write a little bit, go in, lay it down, listen to it, correct it, then go back, write some more, come in, lay that down. Oh, yeah, figure out where it's going. Go back, write some more, go in and finish the record. Nobody else could do that. Nobody else, uh, first of all, nobody else wanted to do that. And secondly, nobody else could do that. None of them had the freedom to produce things like we did. So they still had to do a traditional, here's our skit, you know, now it's on the radio, so we'll put in static and we'll do sound effects and things. But they, they didn't have the leisure to write a whole story. Yeah. To tell a whole story, a surrealistic story. And the Nick Danger record, which was the side two of the Marxist-Leninist record, only ended up on the record because we were going to do it as a radio serial. And then the radio station we were on changed its format to Hasidic cowboy country western <laughs> rock and roll. And so we said, well, let's... Let's make, a, uh, let's make a, uh, a story out of it and put it on the record. And that was our breakthrough because people could understand what we were making fun of. Yeah. And more people came to us. And then Don't Crush That Dwarf, which was about click, 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 changing stations and using that dramatic format to tell a story. Everybody understood that too. And so that, and then the fourth record, I think Robozo's on this bus, which was about a guy named Clem who said to the computer, what's your name? Uh, Clem. Hello, uh, Clem. The guy named uh -huh. Clem, who'd been fired from this government-run theme park, comes back, plants a virus in the... He's a, a, a hacker who plants a virus in the mainframe computer, brings the whole thing down, breaks the president, and destroys the whole illusion uh -huh. of the future that the government has created, yeah. of happiness, mar uh, capitalism. Yes. Brings capitalism down okay uh and and is in if you if you ask siri something here see if i can do this this is my iphone now here we go let's see okay this is a demonstration of something amazing this is worker speaking hello hello aklem what function can i perform for you lol you may well ask why is siri saying that it's because Jobs was a Firesign fan, and he put he put this in as an homage to the Firesign Theater. When I was doing voices for Pixar movies, I did voices for uh, A Bug's Life, and David Osman also played a major role in that. And we went up to Oakland for the 
cast and crew party, and I met Steve Jobs. And he, because he had invested in Pixar. Mm-hmm. And that's when he told me, he said, I'm a big fan of yours. But it wasn't until after he was gone and years later that I discovered this amazing thing. And, wow. and sometimes if you say to her, why does the porridge bird lay his egg in the air, which was the virus question that we put into the computer, a question that could not be answered by yes or no, she will say, you can't, you can't shut me down that easily. She doesn't always do it, but she, she <laughs> will say it. Anyway. Cultural effect. It's interesting Cultural because effect. I'm talking to you this whole time and you keep mentioning this happened and then this happened and then this happened and then that happened. No worry or decision making. It just sort of, you jumped on the current. There was decision making. For instance, uh, I had a career with the Firesign Theater. I also had a career doing movies and television. So I get offers. Uh, I got this one offer to go to Tahiti to do a pilot for two weeks in which I was going to speak French. Uh, and uh, it, which came from two producers that I worked with before that I, I loved. But the Firesign Theater had a gig. Because one of the things Firesign Theater would do was we would work out our material for our records by performing at a place called the Ashgrove, which is now the Improv down in Hollywood. And I remember going through an internal debate with myself and my girlfriend at the time. You know, what should I do? What should I? God, I wanted to go to Tahiti and do that. My God. And then a pilot maybe to be a television series. You know, it's a wonderful opportunity to do something. But I turned it down for Firesign Theater. Now, I did. That's the way it is. When you think back on things like that, you go like, well, why couldn't I just say to the guys, I'm going to Tahiti for two weeks and let's reschedule what, I don't remember all the circumstances of why I had to do that. I won a trip to Switzerland uh, on the dating game with Deborah Wally, who was one of the flying nuns. I had to turn that down for the same reason. You know, you make these decisions and that's what they are. I turned down management which would have led to a movie, more of a movie career for Firesign Theater. I turned down an independent career for an effect on the society, for a cultural effect. I felt ultimately, as painful as it was to me as an artist, I felt it was more important for me to stay with this group, which was doing this unique once-in-a-lifetime thing and to dedicate my talents to that instead of going off in these other tangents which might have thrown out of balance my relationship with my other partners. And that was a guiding principle in my life. I probably shouldn't have used decisions to illustrate the point I was, I was going to make, but my point was that it seems to me, from talking to you, that you're someone who was never afraid of change. You were never afraid of the next thing. Uh, Yeah, I always embraced it, and I always fought for it. For me, uh, permanence is not that important. What, What my wife Melinda and I are doing with our retirement, if you will, is travel. She's going in for an ankle replacement surgery next Thursday. Uh, We just had a meeting with a doctor today. And she's doing that because she can't walk around these walking cities as much as we, as we used to be able to. Because mm-hmm. her ankle has is, is gotten kind of arthritic and worn down. She has, so we're hopefully going to, after her recovery, be able to, you know, to do more traveling. Would you attribute the fact that you've been married three times to the fact that you have this philosophy where permanence is not, 
No, no, just just bad choices. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, no. The first marriage broke up because my wife, Sheila, who, uh, there's more about her in the book. She was an ice skating uh, she was an ice skating champion. She was supposed to fly to uh, Czechoslovakia with the pre-Olympic tryout team. She turned it down to to uh, uh, become a, an actress at Universal, where she met Sharon Tate, and that plane crashed and killed everybody on board. Okay. Wow. But she, basically, when she met me, was overwhelmed with everything that was happening. I was starring in a movie with Jack Nicholson and Orson Welles in Tuesday Weld. Firesign Theater was selling records up the wazoo. I was touring, I think, with maybe Procter & Bergman. I can't remember. Uh, but, but I had a great career going. She had a career, too. She was the voice of the Swiss Miss Coco. Yodel, yeah, mm -hmm. You know, and she, she, she <laughs> really? was a writer. She did all kinds of great things. Uh, but she kind of wanted to ride on my coattails. Mm -hmm. And eventually, when she saw that my career was this strange career, not this movie star career, she kind of wanted to bail. And she got out of it. My second marriage, uh, which resulted in my beautiful child, my grandchildren, and a nice relationship with Barbro, who's remarried and living, still living in Oslo, uh, broke up because uh, she suffered from depression, which was undiagnosed. And she also suffered from the uh, uh, problem of the Scandinavians, which is alcoholism. And it created too much of a strain in our relationship. And then her father died and she had to take care of her mother back in uh, uh, in Oslo and all of this. And it was just like life kind of changed. Was it hard for you, though? Were you yeah. trying to cling on and, sure. and couldn't? Sure, sure. Uh, both, both breakups were difficult. They always are. The first one you mentioned was a very bad one. Yeah, it was because uh, Sheila, well, she was an eccentric character and she behaved eccentrically. And, uh, but then it's never easy. And, you know, they're, these are personal personal things yeah. they happen to everybody and you get through them and you learn from them i mean growing up is a, is a slow process you know we're not dropped into the at least most of us are not dropped into the world you know fully fully formed and functioning we grow and we learn we learn the hard way we learn through experience and uh, and it depends on how you take those experiences and make them into positive uh understandings and evolutions in your own life uh, as to whether you're going to be happy or not. Yeah. You know? Uh, uh, Marx. What was good about Marx, and I want you to read some more uh, uh, about him, was that he recognized that you had to deconstruct a society in order to reconstruct the society. He also understood the power of politicizing philosophy so that it could become a weapon of change. And it, it has to do with the power of the cult. Getting people to think in a same mindset, okay? 
and to therefore effect change through politics or in the Russia's case, the violent revolution. In case of France, violent overthrow of the government, mm -hmm. which was changing gears, deconstructing one way of governance and society, which wasn't working anymore as the world mechanized and replacing it or rebuilding it in a new image. Uh, and, and so what else, what else did he say? Let's well, before I go back to what he said, I'm going to read you a little bit about him. Marx was born on May 5th, 1818 to Heinrich Marx. I think that's how you'd say it. H-E-I-N. Heinrich. Heinrich. Heinrich Marx. Henry. And Henrietta Pressburg. Henry and Henrietta. Woo! Yeah. He was born at, uh, you probably could pronounce this. It's here, got the U with little, it, the little dots okay. on top of the here, U. Okay. How would you Okay. Uh, he was born at Brückengasse. Brückengasse. Uh, uh, oh, it's his, his street name. Uh -huh. not broken glass, but broken gas. <laughs> 664 in Trier, a town then part of the kingdom of Prussia's province of the Lower Rhine. He was a bottom feeder in the Lower Rhine. Marx was ancestrally Jewish, as his maternal grandfather was a Dutch rabbi while his parental line had supplied Trier's rabbis since 1723, a role taken by his grandfather, Maya Halevi-Marx. His father, as a child known as Herschel, as a child known as Herschel. <laughs> well, what did he change his name to? Just Hirsch, as he Hirsch. got older. Hershey was the first in the line to receive a secular education, not a sexual, not a sexual, sexual, a secular education. Well, I think a secular comes with a sexual. Um, it could be. And he became a lawyer and lived a relatively wealthy and middle-class existence with his family owning a number of Moselle vineyards. Moselle, great grape, great grape, sweet grape. That's the slogan, Moselle, great grape. Great grapes. Prior to his son's birth and to escape the constraints of anti-Semitic legislation, Herschel converted from Judaism to Lutherism. <sighs> the main Protestant denomination in Germany and Prussia at the time, taking on the German forename, oh, here we go, of Heinrich over the Yiddish Herschel. There you go. That's why your child named Herschel. I'm Heinrich, not Herschel. <laughs> I changed my name to live. <laughs> Marx was yeah. a third cousin, once removed, but then they returned him, of German romantic <laughs> poet Heinrich Heine. I love Heinrich Heine's You know? You yeah, know? sure. Also born to a German-Jewish family in the Rhineland, with whom he became a frequent correspondent in later life. Hmm. Okay, let's see. So, so Marx's birthplace, now Brückenstrasse, Broken Street, Brückenstrasse 2, 10, in Trier, which was purchased by the Social Democratic Party. His street, oh, his birthplace, was purchased by the Social Democratic Party of Germany in 1928 and now houses a museum devoted to him. Okay. Uh, largely non-religious, Heinrich was a man of the Enlightenment, interested in the ideas of the philosophers Immanuel Kant and Voltaire, both uh, very uh, cynical. A classical liberal, he took part in agitation for constitution and reforms in Prussia and governed by an absolute monarchy. In 1815, Heinrich Marx began work as an attorney and in uh, 1918 moved his family to a 10-room property, wow, near the Porta Nigra. 
his wife Henrietta Pressburg, plus a Dutch Jewish woman in a prosperous business family that later founded the company Philips Electronics. Really? Wow. Named after me. Her sister Sophia. You never think about all that when you brush your teeth. Well, here's why. Her sister Sophia married Lion Phillips. Not Leon, it says here. Lion. Now, I'm a Leo named Philip, and she married Lion Phillips. See? <laughs> this is a street name for a See? guy who tells a little. Right. Yeah, there's Lion Phillips again. What is he going to tell us now? And was the grandmother and blah, blah. Yeah. Lion Phillips was a wealthy Dutch tobacco manufacturer. I'm Pennsylvania Dutch, but I'm actually German, Bavarian German. I'm actually Schweizer Deutsch. Uh -huh. My family comes from Bern, which we visited about th uh, four months ago. How is it? It's beautiful. Beautiful. I don't know why my relatives left, frankly. But, you know. Uh -huh. Anyway, uh, whom Carl and Jenny Marks would later come to rely for loans when they were exiled in London. Okay, it goes on and on. It goes on and on. He, he was in a duel. Well, I don't know. It doesn't really explain why he became, what well, I guess we'd call radicalized uh, at, uh, now, but, but he, he obviously mm -hmm. was surrounded by philosophers yeah, raised, raised was, in the family of you know, philosophers. It may have also been a rejection of... Um, he, the, he was living in... The Jewish aspect of his life, perhaps? Yes. I think that, and uh, and the the wealth that he wound up growing up in, yeah, yeah, it could have been a reaction against his Jewish roots, which were you know religious and uh, clannish and re family, representing the love of the family and the protection of the family and and uh, wealth, because yeah. there was indeed. Uh, in the student population at the time, 19th century, uh, a certain revulsion with capitalists, capitalism and wealth, mm -hmm. uh, in, in exchange for uh, the more revolutionary aspect of uh, student new thought and, you know, revisionism and all that. Mm -hmm. Not my expert field, any of this. Yeah. You know, but... Interesting, nonetheless. Yes. Uh, here's a little bit more on Marx before we okay. get into his... Uh Actual writing, he was, uh, I, I mentioned he was born May 5th, 1818. He died March 14th, 1883. He was a German philosopher, economist, political theorist, socialist, journalist, and revolutionary socialist. Born in Trier to a middle-class family, Marx later supplied political economy and Hegelian philosophy. As an adult, Marx became stateless and spent much of his time in London, England, mm. Where he continued to develop his thought in collaboration with German thinker Friedrich Engels. Engels, Marx and Engels. Uh, that was a, a comedy. Marx and Engels. Yeah, they were big on the vaudeville circuit back then. <laughs> in cabaret, yeah. come to the cabaret tonight, Marx and Engels. Right. <laughs> and he published various works, of which the two most well known are the 1848 pamphlet, The Communist Manifesto, mm -hmm. and the three-volume Das Kapital. Das Kapital, jawohl. His work has since influenced subsequent intellectual, economic, and political history. Marx's theories about society, economics, and politics collectively understood as Marxism hold that human societies develop through class struggle. Mm -hmm. In capitalism, this manifests itself in conflict between the ruling class known as the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. Is that a good pronunciation? La bourgeoisie, yes, good. Uh, that control the means of production and working class known as the proletariat? The proletariat. Okay. 
uh, that enable these means by selling their labor power in return for wages. Employing a critical approach known as human materialism, Marx predicted that, like previous socioeconomic systems, capitalism produced internal tensions which would lead to its self-destruction and replacement by a new system, socialism. Mm -hmm. For Marx, class antagonisms under capitalism, owing in part to its instability and crisis-prone nature, oh, yeah. would eventuate the working class development of class consciousness, leading to their conquest of political power and eventually the establishment of a classist communist Classless society. society. Yeah, good, good luck. Yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, however, something earlier that, that you said there, uh, socialism. I was married to a Norwegian and had the benefit of spending time in Norway and other Scandinavian countries. My wife, Melinda Peterson, Peterson is of Swedish and Scottish ancestry. And we've spent some time in, in Sweden as well. The happiest societies in the world are the Scandinavian societies and Costa Rica or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they espoused and espoused democratic socialism. In other words, their, their countries are based on a balance between a contribution, everybody's contribution economically to the state as a whole, which in return offers benefits like universal schooling, health care, and end-of-life care, among other things. Mm -hmm. Plus the maintenance of the infrastructure of the country. My ex-wife's father, Rolf Semingsen, was a trust buster in the government of Norway. What does that mean? He ensured that no company in the Norwegian state would become so powerful that it would influence or unbalance the equal distribution of wealth to all of the citizens of the country. We're talking about basically the fact that the country takes care of its people and takes yeah. care of itself. Right. The country is responsible for the welfare of its people. And it's a social contract. And and you're ex-wife's father was a guardian over that. He was a guardian of that. Okay. That's right. And uh, and I believe in that. I believe that our country is capable of that too. But the resistance against it by non-progressive thinking, in my way of looking at it, is insane. Insane. Uh, to me, the Republican Party and the so-called Conservative Party is a, an insanely backward-thinking group of crazy old people, crazy old men. Uh, and the people who follow them are people who bought hook, line, and sinker the idea that we can actually go back to a time when things were different and easier and better. Let me just go back. Let's just go back to that time. You know? So you're talking about going back versus going forward. Well, yeah. You know, the arrow of time is relentless. But people are not taught these things. That's why we have this divided country. There are people who actually believe we can go back to the old times. When, you know, let's go back to slavery. Sure, let's go back. It was better then. Everybody knew their place. You know, let's go, let's go back to, uh, uh, gosh, the golden age when uh, everybody looked out for themselves, you know, and when, I don't know, 
you, you could really make something of yourself. You could become successful. I never really thought about work, it in, in you know? those terms, in terms of backwards thinking or forwards thinking, other than that it, it's used as an insult, you know? But I've never thought about it in terms of actually the fact that you are thinking about, yeah, I want to go back. Listen, it's in the paper today, in the LA Times. I don't, I'm sorry I don't have it up here. I could read you the actual quote. I forgive quote. you. It's in, an, it's in an article. I, I, I'm not even sure if it's an op-ed piece. I think it's a piece about business. But it, it's, it quotes a woman who says that she voted for Trump because she wanted to go back to the way things were. And that's what he was selling. That's what, you know, that's the, mm -hmm. the, the horrible lie that he was selling to everybody. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's dangerous. We're in a very dangerous time right now. It, it, it's either going to be, we're either going to have a positive outcome or we're going to have a negative outcome, which could set us back for decades. A class of laborers live only so long as they find work. These laborers are a commodity like every other article of commerce and are exposed to all the fluctuations of the market. They become an appendage of the machine and it is only the most monotonous knack that is required of them. Hence, the cost of production of a workman is restricted to the means of substance that he requires for his maintenance and the propagation of his race. Well, now that's really heady stuff. Get a hold of yourself, Marx. <laughs> okay, he's saying laborers live only so long as they find work. Well, yes! And that's also the actor's dilemma. <laughs> and okay? every, and the director's not, dilemma. Everybody's the artist, dilemma, It's everybody's right? dilemma. You don't have work, you, what are you going to do? Yeah, and until we change the nature of our society, you know, which some, some, I think the Netherlands are experimenting with the idea of giving everybody a fixed income based on the uh, gross natural product. And other, other countries are toying with this idea. Uh, Everybody's going to have to work because this is again yeah. robotics. That Netherlands, robotics. the idea—I don't think that's going to work at all. Because well, we don't know, but at least they're going to try, and we'll—and we'll, it'll be an experiment. See? Yeah. I mean, what the heck? Look, how much time do we have here on the Earth? You know, and what is the point of our being here if we don't experiment? Let's see what happens. That's the only way you have to scientifically observe it and see if it works or not. If it doesn't work, we've learned it doesn't work. I'm for watching it happen. Right, I'm good. Just, I'm glad you are. Yes. But part of the problem with this country is that people are not worth. They are, not, they are afraid to experiment. They're afraid to try new ideas. They want to go back to the old ways. And it's wrong. It's going to destroy the country. It's already destroying the country. And I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to you know, lower myself to a political discussion. Right. But I'm just going to tell you from an old satirist's perspective who has watched the world, born in 1940, still alive now, seen a lot of administrations come and go. I'm telling you, we're in a very dangerous time. So back to Marx. Uh, the labor is a commodity. Yes, we know that. They become an appendage of the machine. Yes, but you see, the problem is, I'll give you an example. Uh, yeah, he says that the cost of production is restricted to the means of substance that he requires for his maintenance. He requires for maintenance. The bosses think he's required for his maintenance. This is the idea of a few 
up the living wage, you know, the hourly wage, everything. It'll become more harder for the producer, for the, the capitalist who owns the company. And what benefit will it have for the people? Well, they'll buy more things and, and we won't know until we experiment. Could we look at capitalism as it stands in this country today and say maybe this is a failed system? I think you probably could, but it's functioning. It's functioning poorly for the majority of the citizens. Yeah, I think I think it is, but the governance does not recognize that fact as a negative that needs to be fixed. They recognize it as a positive that keeps them in office. Longer, longer, longer. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. So the, the the corruption, the fish rots from the head down. The corruption is at the top. In Russian, the word for government is gasudarstva. A gasudar was the owner of an estate. And he was the master of the serfs that worked under him on the estate. The Gosudar. The government in Russia is called the Gosudarstva, based on the idea that the governance is the all-wise father figure who is caring for his serfs, for the, the children that work under his care. And that's to why... Ma- to maintain the goods and services that provide, that the estate provides. And that's why Stalingrad stayed Stalingrad for so long, because everybody believed Stalin was a was this wonderful God figure to them and didn't want to see him for who he was. You know, uh, today, the doctor who's going to perform ankle surgery on my wife, Dr. Uh, Hakabajian, I think his name is, he's a Russian-Armenian, uh, been in this country for a long time. He's the expert in this ankle replacement surgery. And he actually quoted his grandmother, who said that Stalin was a good man who was misunderstood. (laughs) Are you sure that you want to trust this man with your wife's ankle? Oh, I'll trust him implicitly. He was quoting his grandmother. Yeah. Who, who who was saying to him right. that S- Stalin was just misunderstood? But he, he doesn't. He's not with her on that. Oh, for heaven's sake! No. <laughs> we then went on to say, like, uh, you know, to draw the analogy that that he let millions of people die for right. I think. Well, let's see. What was she, what she said was something like, as long as he was winning the war, no, something like winning the war proved that he was a good man. Mm-hmm. Okay, so his deeds uh, erased all of his uh, sins in her eyes. Yeah, that's always so fascinating to me because growing up in America, you never think of Russia as also having won World War II, but they did. They were our allies, and they helped to win World, yeah. World War II. At a great sacrifice, mm-hmm. too. Um, and the Russian people are... Extraordinary people, extraordinary people, and they have their own cross to bear with Putin. They're terrible, you know. They're they're oppressed in many ways. Homosexuality is a crime. There's all kinds of terrible, terrible, archaic thinking involved. In, but it's a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. The the world 
seems to think that if you have a strong leader, you will be a stronger nation and a better nation, and everybody will benefit from it. And we're seeing some of that in the pushback against the Trump administration right now, which is kind of like, we need a stronger leader. Yeah. And see, so the thinking is in a way still flawed because you don't, you want, what you want is an enlightened person who espouses policies and who, who encourages debate and who encourages cooperation mm -hmm. to make the democracy, the republic, work in a democratic way. Yeah, but people aren't going to think that way. They're just going to think in terms of intimidation. We, we're, the, we're the strongest. Get away from us. It's playground Which politics. is why we got this terrible yeah. thing going on between Little Rocket Man and, yeah. and uh, Small Hand Trump. Anyway, <clears throat> um, will you do the honors to help us close the show out and uh, read us some quotes? All right. These are quotes by uh, Mr. Marx, Karl, Herr Karl Marx. The ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class. Well, if you take out the dollar bill and you look at the symbol of the pyramid, you see the all-seeing eye at the top of the pyramid. That is Masonic, and it's the ruling class. And it's the philosophy, it's our forefathers, the dead old white men, the philosophy that the enlightened, the elite, know the best way, the best educated, they're the best educated, they're the ones who will light the path towards enlightenment and uh, ultimately a well-balanced society. But if you look at the pyramid, you see that it's made up of all these different layers, and the bottom layer is basically the working class, okay, that sustained the pyramid, that built the pyramid, and put the elite where they are. Mm -hmm. So this is a very astute understanding. The ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class. Not always a good thing, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, that has been supplanted in our society now by the Supreme Court, I want to remind you. So the concept of a ruling class, which we rejected when we had our revolution, okay, has been replaced really in our country by the elected officials and unfortunately by appointed officials. Mm -hmm who have sway over the through the legislative branch on some of the most important decisions that, that govern our country, okay? So the concept of ruling class is something that we'd have to investigate a little more. Yes. Yeah. Marx would have to reevaluate what that means in terms of American society. Now, a second quote is, art is always the secret confession and at the same time, the immortal movement of its time. That's very heavy. And Can we break that one up for me? Yeah, Sorry. art is always the secret confession of its time. And at the same time, its immortal movement. Well, there you go. That's why you decided to stay with the Fire Sign Theater. It's true. It's true. And, and remember what I was saying about uh, uh, my discussion with Moss Hart and the debate between the secret and the public aspect of art. Art is always a secret profession that is made public because the 
art of becoming an artist is a secret endeavor. And everybody has to approach it in their own way to master the skill sets that are necessary to be able to be recognized as an artist and rewarded as an artist in society because the competition is so great. And the goal of any artist is to work in collaboration with other great artists and to learn from them and to give to them and to appreciate the incredible effect that comes out of a collaborative, the collaborative aspects of our performance art or collaborative writing, for that matter. Or podcasting. Or podcasting. Or simply being a part of something that is greater than the, than the pieces that make it up. Broadway show, lighting, the lighting. The, if you see Hamilton, the coordination between the lighting and the, uh, the, the stage design and the costumes and the singers and the performers and the, choreo- and the dancers and the orchestra is amazing. It's what makes it so much greater than the sum of its parts and makes it such a, an astonishing uh, 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 force of, uh, of, the, of change on Broadway and everything. Hmm. So being a part of something like that is very important. And I think that's where, what he means by uh, the immortal movement of its time. If something is immortal, it has a lasting effect. Fireside Theater has had a lasting effect. Yeah, that's what I meant when I said you... Which you is very decide. rewarding. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, very rewarding. And, and any great art that changes, that advances the state of the art of its time, such as Hamilton, is bound to set a standard for the next great change. Okay, so this is a very, very deep and bright thing that he said. Uh, and, of course, he is appreciating art, which we do not always appreciate in our society. I totally agree with that. The philosophy that I espouse is that we make our own history. We tell our own story. We make our own story. People have come up to me and said, you've changed my life or you saved my life. And that to me has always been the most touching thing to hear. That's the best reward of it all, isn't it? Yeah, because it means that whatever I've been doing to make people laugh or observe their society in a lighter way uh, has has touched individual people, individual people. Uh, and that ultimately is the, the best reward of all. I mean, you mentioned earlier something that made me feel like you were regretful that you you hadn't had more mainstream success. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it in these terms, does it even matter? No, it doesn't. And that's what I really uh, have learned to embrace. But there's a certain headiness that comes out of uh, a significant success. And to be recognized for your talents on a broad basis is very rewarding. Since my career has been primarily voiceover, <laughs> I don't get that kind of recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time when Firestein Theater was more publicly uh, popular that I would be recognized, and I enjoyed that. When the Firesign Theater, in the, in the, uh, represented by David Osman and I, performed at the Library of Congress, what, t- t- two weeks, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and we walked out on that stage, and we received 
this standing warm ovation. And as we performed our material and, and improvised to a little movie that we showed of the actual home movies of the sessions of Don't Crush That Dwarf Hand Me the Pliers and in the question and answer session to follow, we would get warm, laughing, loving responses from the crowd. You're signaling that waves. Waves that you physically feel in your solar plexus and in your heart. And that is, I just can't tell you how, how rewarding that is and how satisfying it is. The weird other side of that that I've seen happen to friends of mine, and uh, sadly so, is that sometimes people get so much recognition that it actually hurts them. Yeah, it's, it's true. And, 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 you know, my friends who are stars, some of them have expressed that. Harry Anderson is another friend of, of mine. We just spent uh, about three or four days with Harry down in Asheville, somebody that we've known for a very long time who had an enormous success. Proctor and Bergman were partly responsible for it because we told him he opened for us as a magician when we were performing down in Houston and Austin, Texas. And we said, Harry, you should go to, you should go to Hollywood. You got this stuff for it. You're going to make it. Next thing I know, I'm guest starring on Night Court, uh -huh. his show, <laughs> yeah. and then on Dave's World didn't, after didn't that. Didn't you have some connection to Steve Martin as well? Yeah. Steve, uh, Steve was also very open, you know, and, and smart, loving person. Uh, but his success just took him right away. It's the same thing. We, he opened for, uh, oh, pardon me, he was performing, well, oh, two things. He opened for the Firestone Theater, the first time we ever performed publicly at the Pasadena Ice House. Uh-huh. And he was doing his silly balloon animals thing, and he was doing his crazy magic act, and he was absolutely wonderful. And he got uh, panned in the review. The guy didn't get it, but he loved the Firestone Theater, and we're going like, what? wait a minute. He was absolutely on a par with what we were doing. He was a perfect pairing. He's a surrealistic stand-up. Mm -hmm. But he was breaking new ground. Yeah. And, and the critic was going like, well, oh, I don't, this guy's not doing standards. You know, he's not punchline. Da, 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 da. So he <laughs> yeah. didn't get it. But we did. And then years later, when we were, Peter and I were working at the, the, the door, the something door in Washington, in Georgetown, the bitter door, <laughs> no, the golden door, I don't know. Anyway, Martin was doing his uh, Wild and Crazy Guy act with the arrow through his head uh -huh. uh, be the night before we were performing. So we went and saw his show. And afterwards, we hung out for a little while with him, and we said the same thing. We said, Steve, this is it. <laughs> yeah. You are ready. You know. And he was like, oh, I don't know. And I said, no, no, you're ready. And so then he goes and he, he does what, the Hollywood Bowl or something? Uh -huh. And that was it. That was it. Explosion. And he's a genius. And he's continued to show, you know, what a genius he is. Harry, on the other hand, the reason why I brought him up was he dropped out. He withdrew after the success of Night Court because he said he never considered himself to be a, a, an actor. Okay? And he also says he suffered from stage fright. And and so at when after that ended, he quit for a while, moved up to uh, Twin Peaks, and retired from the business. And then they made him an offer he couldn't refuse with Dave's World. He came back down. He did that, and same thing. Dave's World had a great run. At a certain point, the producers started to change, the writing started to change, the quality of the show started to change, and he just said enough. 
not going to do it anymore. And what he did was that he uh, got an accountant and he said to his accountant, now, I want to know how I can live on the money I've made until I die in this lifestyle that I've chosen for myself, in this nice house with this beautiful wife, Mm -hmm. my two little dogs in Asheville. My kids are going to take care of themselves. I've taken care of them. I gave them some money to get them started. Just me. How do I do that? And he worked out a program. And that's, he's living, you know, (laughs) a happy life, creating magic tricks, selling magic tricks. So he has reinvented himself too. But... He, he makes choices. He made choices that were right for him, his spirit, his soul, his, his balance, and his happiness. And I admire him for it. And I think that's a good lesson to take away from this episode is make those choices that are right for you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think you've done that. And uh, Thank you. I'll say two things. One, I notice that you often talk in terms of two things. <laughs> I I believe in the, the yin and the yang of existence, the duality of, of all being, you see. And the dimension, that is a lesson of this dimensionality, you see, because we have to make choices. That is why we invented computers. It's a yes or a no, you see. Yes. And that is what makes the, the mind the greatest mind of all, is the yes and the no. How can you, what is the choice of yes and no? Can, you cannot live in the yes and no. Mm-hmm. You must make the choice, you see. Yes. <laughs> Or no. <laughs> or no. <laughs> and second of all, thank you for having me. It was very nice talking to you. Real Thanks. pleasure. Pleasure. And I too. encourage everybody to pick up the book on Amazon, Where's My Fortune Cookie? The Firesign Theaters, Phil Proctor and Brad Schreiber. Very good. Thanks so much. Thank you. so cold out here there you have it that's our episode thanks again to phil proctor for doing the show thank you guys for tuning in go pick up a copy of his book where's my fortune cookie available on amazon.com and of course pick up my album danny labelle the nicest boy in barcelona or my album on vinyl danny labelle some kind of comedian at standuprecords.com you can get the first five seasons of modern day philosophers which had Lots and lots of great guests, Bill Burr, Mark Marin, Carl Reiner, Gene Garofalo, Maria Bamford, Fred Stoller, Rick Shapiro, lots more. They're all available up on iTunes for sale, linked on the website moderndayphilosophers.net, where you can also leave a donation. Please leave a nice comment on iTunes and five stars. We also have merchandise up on the website. Now we have t-shirts and stuff you can pick up. It's really cool. Check it out, and please follow us on Twitter. Alex and I have been working really hard on the Twitter feed. It's at MDP underscore podcast. We're posting quotes every day and pictures and all kinds of other stuff. We also have an Instagram going. Check it all out. All right, everybody. Until next time, pick up a shirt for the holidays or an album or something. Or make a donation. I don't know. For the holidays? For the holidays, will you? Maybe? All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.